0: You're listening to After School Detention on Open Lines Radio. I'm not sure what you did to deserve to be here. I'm not sure what kind of karma you need to clean, but you're here, so listen up. This is a collection of four Alan Watts lectures chosen by Holly for Judah. Forget about me. I'll be alone. Dancing.
1: Everybody should do in their lifetime, sometime, two things. One is to consider death. To observe skulls and skeletons and to wonder what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Never. That uh, is the most, is a very gloomy uh, thing for contemplation. But it's like manure. Manure. Just as manure fertilizes the plants and so on, so the contemplation of death and the acceptance of death is very highly generative of creative life. You get wonderful things out of that. And the other thing to contemplate is to follow the possibility of the idea that you are totally selfish. That you don't have a good thing to be said for you at all. You are a complete utter rascal. Now, when you go deeply into the nature of selfishness, what do you discover? You say, I love myself, I seek my own advantage. Now, what is the self that I love? What do I want? And that becomes an increasingly ever deepening puzzle. Now, I've often referred to this when you say to somebody else, I love you, It's always rather disconcerting to the person to whom you say that. If you imply that you love them with a pure disinterested and holy love, they automatically suspect it as being a little bit phony. But if you say, I love you so much I could eat you, That's an expression as a way of saying to a person, you attract me so much that I can't help it. I'm absolutely bowled over by you. I'm gone and people like that. Then they feel they're really being loved, that it's absolutely genuine. But now I love you so much I could eat you. Now, what the devil do I want? I certainly don't want to eat the girl in the sense of literally devouring her because then she'd disappear.
0: <laughs>
1: ah, but I love myself. And what is me? How do I, in what way do I know me? When it suddenly occurs to me that I know me only in terms of you. And that the main task of the psychotherapist is to do what he called to integrate the evil to, as it were, put the devil in us in its proper function. Because you see, it's always the devil, the unacknowledged one, the outcast, the scapegoat, the bastard, the bad guy, you see, the black sheep of the family. It's always from that point that generation comes. In other words, uh, in the same way as in the drama, uh, to have the play, it's necessary to introduce a villain. It's necessary to introduce a certain element of trouble. So in the whole scheme of life, there has to be the shadow because without the shadow, there can't be the substance. So this is why There is a very strange association between crime and all naughty things and holiness. You see, holiness is way beyond being good. Good people aren't necessarily holy people. A holy person is one who is whole. Who has, as it were, reconciled his opposites. And so, there's always something slightly scary about holy people. And other people react to them in very strange ways. They can't make up their minds, whether they're saints or devils. And so, holy people have, throughout history, always created a great deal of trouble, along with their creative results. Let's take Jesus, for example. The trouble that Jesus created is absolutely incalculable. <laughs> Think of the Crusades, the Inquisition, the heaven only knows what's gone on in the name of
0: Jesus.
1: (laughs) Very remarkable. Freud's a big troublemaker. Jung had a tremendous humor. And he knew that nobody can be completely honest. That you will try and you'll have a great deal of success in uh, exploring your motivations and your dark, unconscious depths, but there will be a certain point at which you will say well I've had enough of that
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> do you
1: see how in a strange way there's a certain sanity in that when a person indulges in a certain kind of duplicity of deception there is something you all laughed when I said that there's something humorous about it And this humor is a very funny thing. Basically, humor is an attitude of laughter about oneself. There is malicious humor, which is laughing at other people, but real deep humor is laughter at oneself. Now, why fundamentally do you laugh about yourself? What makes you laugh about yourself? Isn't it because you know that there is a big difference between what goes on the outside and what goes on the inside. (laughs) Now, I passed you around a lot of embroidery to look at before we started. And I'm perfectly sure that you got the point that there's a big difference between the front and the back. (coughs) In some forms of embroidery, the back is very different from the front because people take shortcuts. In the front everything is orderly and it is supposed to be kind of messy on the back side see which side will you wear you've got to be sure you get the front in the front have the back in the back the back has all the little tricks in it all the shortcuts all the low down that people don't acknowledge see and it's exactly the same with the way we live you know like sweeping the dust under the carpet in a hurry just before the guests come I mean, we do ever so many things like that. And if you don't do it, if you don't think you do it, and you think, well, really, my embroidery is the same on both sides, see? Well, you're deceiving yourself. Because what you're doing is you're taking the shortcuts in another dimension, which you're keeping out of consciousness. Everybody takes the shortcuts. Everybody plays tricks. Everybody has in himself an element of duplicity deception. Because you see, from this point of view that I'm discussing, where the web is the trap, to be is to deceive. Think of camouflage, the chameleon who changes its color. Think of the butterfly pretending it has eyes. Think of the flower saying to the bee, like my honey. <laughs> the bee says, wow.
0: <laughs>
1: but then that means that the bee has to be and it has to go on living and all the trouble it takes to go around collecting honey and raising other bees and organizing itself and doing that dance, which tells the other bees where there's more honey. There's all that stuff to do. But the flower was deceptive. Now, In the same way, I've often said, life is is a drama and a drama is a deception. It's a big act. When you peel an onion and you don't really understand the nature of an onion, you might look for the pit in the center, like any ordinary fruit has, but the onion doesn't have a center. It's all skins. So when you get right down, there's nothing but a bunch of skins. You say, well, that was a kind of disappointing. (laughs) well in rather the same way you see you find when you explore yourself uh, and your motivations and you go through and through and you try to find out that thing which is really genuine so you explore the onion and you go in and in and in and then you find well uh, it's all a deception Now then the question arises, who's deceiving who? Who's fooling who? I'm fooling me? What is fooling? Fooling is playing like you're there when you're not. You know, getting somebody else to answer your name in the roll call. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all, this is the metaphysical basis of it. This is what the Hindus mean by maya, the world illusion. The world is playing it's there when it isn't. And it's a trap. And it sucks you in. And you can't get out of it. And it's a thorough big trap too. But always when you get an idea like this or a feeling like this, follow it to its extreme. Don't back out from it. If you find you're selfish, go to the extreme of what selfishness means. Confusion largely results from not following feelings or ideas to their depth. You know, people think they want to be immortal. They'd like to live forever. Do you really want to do that? Think about it. Really go into it, what it would be like. People say they want this, that and the other. They want this kind of car, they want this kind of dress or so on and um, this much money and so on. It's always a good idea to think it right through. What it would involve to be in that situation to have those desires fulfilled. Also when you form a relationship to another person, think it through too, you see? How inconvenient would they be? <laughs> However attractive
0: and uh,
1: always turn the embroidery round and look at the underside, but don't get caught doing it. See, that's something one does on the side in secret, because otherwise you play the game that everything is as it's supposed to be on the front. But that makes you humorous and that makes you human. The only way to handle danger is to face it. If you start getting frightened of it, then you make it worse. Because you project onto it all kinds of bogeys and threats which don't exist in it at all. Whenever you meet a ghost, don't run away. Because the ghost will capture the substance of your fear and materialize itself out of your own substance and will kill you eventually. Because it will take over all your own vitality so then whenever confronted with a ghost walk straight into it and it will disappear we've got to survive you must survive that's the great thing we're all working under and pounding it out day after day in anxiety because this is a description of anxiety anxiety is the fear that one of a pair of opposites might cancel the other And if by any chance, by any means, you find out that that is not so, you have an entirely new attitude to what human beings are doing, which may be very creative, but which also may be very dangerous. You You see see through 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 the game. You are only just kidding that you're just poor little me. See, the function of a guru, that is to say a spiritual teacher in India, is to look, give you a funny look in the eye, because you come to him and say, Mr. Guru, I have problems. I, I, I suffer, and uh, it's a mess, and I can't control my mind, and I'm miserable and depressed, and so on, and he gives you a funny look, and you feel a bit nervous about the way he looks at you. Because he thinks, you know, he's reading your thoughts. This man is a great magician. He can read everything that's in you. He knows right down into your unconscious. And you know all the dreadful things you've thought. And all the awful desires you have. And you are rather embarrassed that this man looks right through you and sees them all. But That's not what he's looking at. (laughs) He's giving you a funny look for quite another reason altogether. Because he sees in you the drama. The Godhead. Just claiming it's poor little me. That's why he gives you a funny look. And why he seems to see right through you. As if to say, Shiva, old boy, don't kid me. I know who you are, but you're coming on beautifully in this act (laughs) that you're somebody else altogether. And I congratulate you, you're doing a wonderful job. (laughs) Playing this part, which you call the person, my person. So, it's all very well. Anybody can have ecstasy. Anybody, as a matter of fact, can become uh, aware that he is one with the eternal ground of the universe. But since that's what you are anyway, I'm going to ask, so what? When a hero goes on an adventure and he leaves his people and is going to a strange land, he can go away and just hide himself around the corner in an obscure house. And then appear a year later and say, I've been on a heroic journey and tell all sorts of tales. And they say, prove it. Because they expect him to bring back something. Something which nobody has seen before. Then they believe you've been on the journey. So in the same way exactly, anybody who goes on a spiritual journey must bring something back. Because if you just say, Oh man, it was a gas. (laughs) Anyone can say that. Now this is why in the doctrines of Buddhism, there is a differentiation between two kinds of enlightened beings. They are both forms of Buddha, which is to say the word Buddha means somebody who has awakened, who has discovered the secret behind all this. In other words, all this thing we call life with its frantic concerns is a big act. Which you, in your unconscious depths, are deliberately setting up. So, you can do one of two things when you discover this. You can become what's called a Pratyeka Buddha. That means a private Buddha. Who doesn't tell anything. Or you can become a Bodhisattva. Pratika Buddha goes off into his ecstasy and never is seen again. Bodhisattva is come, one who comes back and appears in the everyday world and plays the game of the everyday world by the rules of the everyday world. But he brings with him upaya. He brings with him some way of showing that he's been on the journey, that he's come back, and he's going to let you in on the secret too. If you, if, 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 You'll play it cool and also come back to join in the everyday life of everyday people. The first thing then is to discover what indeed you do love, if anything, and you will find there is something. And then go into the nature of that. Now it's said that selfish people love themselves is something which you thought was other than yourself. Even if it be very ordinary things such as ice cream or uh, booze, uh, in the conventional sense booze is not you nor is ice cream. It certainly it turns into you in a manner of speaking when you consume it but then you don't have it anymore and so you look around for more in order to love it once again. But so long as you love it, you see, it's never you. When you love people, even however selfishly you love them, uh, because of the pleasant sensations they give to you, still, uh, it is somebody else that you love. And as you inquire into this, as you follow honestly your own selfishness, many interesting transformations begin to come about in you. One of the most interesting transformations of being directly and honestly selfish in the same way that, for example, cats are, is that you stop deceiving people. If what you define as you is inseparable from everything which you define as not you, just as front is inseparable from back, then you realize that deep down between self and other there is some sort of conspiracy. (laughs) If these things always occur in combination and look very different from each other and feel quite different, nevertheless the feeling of difference between them allows each one to exist. And so underneath the opposition or the polarity between self and other, or between any other pair of opposites you can think of. There is something in common, as there is, for example, between figure and background. You can't see a figure without a background. You can't have an organism without an environment. Equally, you can't have a background without a figure, or an environment without organisms in it, or without things in it. You can't have space. Which is unoccupied by any solid. You can ha- cannot have solids not occupying some space. This is absolutely elementary, and yet we don't realize it because, for example, the average person thinks that space, that space is, nothing. is nothing. But it's just a sort of not ness in which there are things and. We are slightly afraid that not there that nothingness, that darkness, that the negative poles of all these oppositions will win. That they will eventually swallow up every kind of being and every kind of there-ness. But when you catch on to the game, you realize that that won't happen. Because what is called not existing is quite incapable of uh, being there without the contrast of something called existing. It's like the crest and the trough of a wave. You can't have a wave that is all trough and no crest, just as you can't have a wave which is all crest and no trough. Such a thing has never been manifested in the physical universe. They go together. 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 And that is the secret. Really is no other secret than that. That is the secret. now I'm sure that most of you know the old story about the astronaut who went far out into space and was asked on his return whether he had been to heaven and seen God and he said yes and so they said to him well what about God and he said she is black (laughs) and although this is a very well-known and well-worn story it is very profound Because, I tell you, I knew a monk who started out in life as pretty much of an agnostic or an atheist, and then he began to read Henri Bergson, the French philosopher who proclaimed the vital force, the élan vital, and uh, so on. And the more he read into this kind of philosophy, the more he saw that these people were really talking about God. And I've read a great deal of theological reasoning about the existence of God. And they all start out on this line. If you are intelligent and reasonable, you cannot be the product of a mechanical and meaningless universe. Figs do not grow on thistles. Grapes do not grow on thorns. And therefore, you, as an expression of the universe, as an aperture through which the universe is observing itself, cannot be a mere fluke. Because if this world peoples, as a tree, brings forth fruit, then the universe itself, the energy which underlies it, What it's all about, the ground of being as Paul Tillich called it, must be intelligent. Now when you come to that conclusion, you must be very careful because you may make an unwarranted jump, namely the jump to the conclusion that that intelligence, that marvelous designing power which produces all this, is the biblical God. Be careful, because that God, contrary to his own commands, is fashioned in the graven image of a paternal, authoritarian, beneficent tyrant of the ancient Near East. And uh, it's very easy to fall into that trap because it's all prepared, institutionalized in the Roman Catholic Church, in the synagogue, in the Protestant churches, all there ready for you to accept. And by the pressure of uh, social consensus and so on and so on, it is very natural to assume that when somebody uses the word God, It is that father figure which is intended, because even Jesus used the analogy, the father, for his experience of God. He had to. There was no other one available to him in his culture. But nowadays, we are in rebellion against the image of the authoritarian father. Especially this should happen in the United States, where it happens that we are a republic and not a monarchy. And if you as a loyal citizen of this country think that a republic is the best form of government, you can hardly believe that the universe is a monarchy. But to reject the paternalistic image of God as an idol is not necessarily to be an atheist although I have advocated something called atheism in the name of God. That is to say, uh, an experience, a contact, a relationship with God, that is to say, with the ground of your being, that does not have to be embodied or expressed in any specific image. Now theologians on the whole don't like that idea because I find in my discourse with them that they want to be a little bit hard-nosed about the nature of God. They want to say that God has indeed a very specific nature. Ethical monotheism means that the governing power of this universe has some extremely definite opinions and rules to which our minds and acts must be conformed. And if you don't watch out, you'll go against the fundamental grain of the universe and be punished. In some way, old-fashionedly, you will burn in the fires of hell forever more modern-fashionedly, you will fail to be an authentic person. It's another way of talking about it. (laughs) But there is this feeling, you see, that there is authority behind the world, and it's not you. It's something else. Like we say, that's something else that's far out. (laughs) And Therefore, this Jewish, Christian and indeed Muslim approach makes a lot of people feel rather strange, estranged from the root and ground of being. There are a lot of people who never grow up and are always in awe of an image of grandfather. Now, I'm a grandfather. I have five grandchildren and so I'm no longer in awe of grandfathers. (laughs) I know I'm just as stupid as my own grandfathers were and uh, therefore I'm not about to bow down to an image of God with a long white beard. Now naturally of course we intelligent people don't believe in that kind of a God, not really. I mean we think that God is spirit that god is uh, very undefinable and infinite and all that kind of thing but nevertheless the images of god are far more have a far more powerful effect upon our emotions than our ideas and when people read the bible and sing hymns ancient of days who sittest throned in glory Immortal, invisible, God only wise, and light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. They still got that fellow up there with a beard on. It's way in the back of the emotions. And so we should think, first of all, in contrary imagery. And the contrary imagery is, she's black. Imagine instead of God the Father, God the Mother. and imagine that this is not a luminous being blazing with light but an unfathomable darkness such as is portrayed in Hindu mythology by Kali K-A-L-I the great mother who is represented in the most terrible imagery Kali has a tongue hanging out long drooling with blood She has fanged teeth, she has a scimitar in one hand and a severed head in the other. And she is trampling on the body of her husband, who is Shiva. Shiva represents also, furthermore, the destructive aspect of the deity, wherein all things are dissolved so that they be reborn again. And here is this blood-sucking, terrible mother as the image of the supreme reality behind this universe. Imagine, it's the representative of the octopus, the spider, the awful awfuls, the creepy crawlies at the end of the line, which we are all terrified of. Now that's a very important image, because let us suppose, just for the sake of argument, that all of you sitting here right now are feeling uh, fairly all right mean you're not in hospital. You are not. You don't have the screaming memes. You have a sense you've probably had dinner and are feeling pretty good. But you know that you feel that you're fairly good because in the background of your minds, very far off in the background of your minds, you've got the sensation of something absolutely ghastly that simply mustn't happen. And so against that, which is not happening, and which doesn't necessarily have to happen, but by comparison with that, you feel pretty all right. And that absolutely ghastly thing that mustn't happen at all is Kali. And therefore at once we begin to wonder whether the presence of this Kali is not in a way very beneficent. I mean, how, how would you know that things were good? unless there was something that wasn't good at all. Now this is, I'm not putting this forward as a final position. I'm only putting it forward as a variation, as a way of beginning to look at a problem, and getting our minds out of their normal ruts. She's black. Well, she, first of all, feminine, represents what is called philosophically the negative principle. Now, of course, people who are women in our culture today and believe in women's lib, don't like to be associated with the negative because the negative has acquired very bad connotations. We say accentuate the positive. Well, that's a purely male chauvinistic attitude. How would you know that you were outstanding Unless, by contrast, there was something in standing. (laughs) You cannot appreciate the convex without the concave. You cannot appreciate the firm without the yielding. And therefore, the so-called negativity of the feminine principle is obviously life-giving and very important. But we live in a culture which doesn't notice it. You see a painting, a drawing, of a bird. And you don't notice the white paper underneath it. You see a printed book and you think that what is important is the printing. And the page doesn't matter. And yet, if you reconsider the whole thing, how could there be visible printing without the page underlying it? What is called substance, that which stands underneath, sub, underneath, stands, stands. To be substantial is to be underlying, to be the support, to be the foundation of the world. And of course, this is the great function of the feminine. to be the substance and therefore the feminine is represented by space which is of course black at night but were it not for black and empty space there would be no possibility whatsoever of seeing the stars. Stars shine out of space and astronomers, very high powered astronomers are beginning to realize that stars are a function of space. Now that's difficult for our common sense because we think that space is simply inert nothingness. But we don't realize that space is completely basic to everything. It's like your consciousness Nobody can imagine what consciousness is. It's the most elusive, whatever it is, that there is at all. Because it's the background of everything else that we know. Therefore, we don't really pay much attention to it. We pay attention to the things within the field of consciousness, to the outlines, to the objects, to the so-called things that are in the field of vision, the sounds that are in the field of hearing, and so forth. But what it is that ever it is that embraces all that, we don't pay much attention to it. We can't even think about it. It's like trying to look at your head. You know, you try to look at your head and what do you find? You don't even find a black blob in the middle of things. You just don't find anything. And yet that is that out of which you see, just as space is that out of which the stars shine. So there's something very queer about all this. That, that which you can't put your finger on, that which always escapes you, that which is completely elusive, the blank, seems to be absolutely necessary for there to be anything whatsoever. Now let's take this further. Kali also is the principle of death because she carries a scimitar in one hand and a severed head in the other. Death. This is tremendously important to think about. We put it off. Death is swept under the carpet in our culture. In the hospital, they try to keep you alive as long as possible in utter desperation. They won't tell you that you're going to die They, uh, when their relatives have to be informed that it's a hopeless case, they say, don't tell this to the patient. And all the relatives come around with hollow grins and say, well, you'll be all right in about a month. And then we'll go and have a holiday somewhere and sit by the sea and uh, listen to the birds and whatnot. And the dying person knows that this is mockery. Well, of course, we've made death howl with all kinds of ghouls. We've invented dreadful afterlives. I mean, the Christian version of heaven is as abominable as the Christian version of hell. I mean, nobody wants to be in church forever. (laughs) Children are absolutely horrified when they hear these hymns which say, prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. They can't imagine what this imagery means. I mean, in a very subtle theological way, I could wangle that statement around to make it extremely profound. I mean, to be prostrate at once and to gaze on the other hand, see, is a coincidentia oppositorum, a coincidence of opposites, which is very, very, very deep. But to a child, it is a crick in the neck. <laughs> and <laughs> that, that's the sort of imagery we're brought up with. So the idea of what might happen after death. Well, you're going to be faced with your judge. The one who knows all about you, this is Big Papa, who knows you were a naughty boy and a very naughty girl, especially girl from the beginning of things he's going to look right through to the core of your inauthentic existence and what kind of heebie-jeebies may come up or you may be believe in reincarnation and you think that uh, your next life will be uh, the rewards and the punishments for what you've done in this life and you know you've got away with murder in this life and the most awful things are going to happen next time around so you look upon death as a catastrophe then there are other people who say well when you're dead you're dead (laughs) (laughs) just no nothing gonna happen at all so what you got to worry about well we don't quite like that idea because it spooks us you know what's it be like to die to go to sleep and never 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 wake up well a lot of things it's not going to be like (laughs) It's not going to be like being buried alive. It's not going to be like being in the darkness forever. I tell you what, it's going to be like as if you never had existed at all. Not only you, but everything else as well. That just there was never anything and there's no one to regret it. (laughs) And there's no problem. Well, think about that for a while. It's kind of a weird feeling you get when you really think about that, you really imagine it. It's just to stop altogether. And it you can't even call it stop because you can't have stop without start. And there wasn't any start. There's just no thing. Well, then when you come to think of it, that's the way it was before you were born. I mean, if you go back in memory, as far as you can go, you get to the same place as you go forward in your anticipation of the future as to what it's going to be like to be dead. Then you get these funny ideas that this blankness is the necessary counterpart of what we call being. Now, we all think we're alive, don't we? I mean, we're really here? That there is something called existence? You know, the existentialists, Dasein, Ah, you know, (laughs) here we are. But how could you be experiencing that as a reality, unless you had once been dead? How, what gives us any ghost of a notion that we are here, except by contrast with the fact that we once weren't. And later on, won't we? But this thing is a cycle like positive and negative poles in electricity. So this then is the value of the symbolism of she is black. She, the womb principle, the receptive, the instanding, the void, and the dark. And so that is to come into the presence of the god who has no image behind the father image behind the mother image behind the image of light inaccessible and behind the image of profound and abysmal darkness there's something else which we can't conceive at all Dionysus, the Areopagite, called it the luminous darkness. Nagarjuna called it Shunyata, the void. Shankara called it Brahman. That which can only, of which nothing at all can be said. Neti, neti. Beyond all conception whatsoever. And you see, that is not atheism in the formal sense of the word this is a profoundly religious attitude because what it corresponds to practically is an attitude to life of total trust of letting go when we form images of god they are all really exhibitions of our lack of faith Something to hold on to. Something to grasp. How firm a foundation. What lies underneath us. The rock of ages, or whatever. Einfesterburg. Burg. But when we don't grasp, we have the attitude of faith. If you let go of all the idols, You will of course discover that what this unknown is, which is the foundation of the universe, is precisely you. It's not the you you think you are. No, it's not your opinion of yourself. It's not your idea or image of yourself. It's not the chronic sense of muscular strain, which we usually call I. You can't grasp it. Of course not. Why would you need to? Supposing you could. What would you do with it? (laughs) and who would do what with it. You can never get at it. So there's that profound, central mystery. And the attitude of faith is to stop chasing it. Stop grabbing it. Because if that happens, the most amazing things follow. But all these ideas of the spiritual, the godly, as this attitude of "Ah, must and we have been laid down the laws which we are bound to follow. All this jazz is not the only way of being religious and of relating to the ineffable mystery that underlies ourselves and the world. Existence already includes non-existence. You could say being and non-being constitute existence. Just as we know physically, sound is constituted by sound silence in very rapid alternation. So uh, being non-being constitute existence. And existence is something of which you may say the game is worth the candle. If it weren't, it wouldn't be. It's like that. Some people try to say there is good and bad with small g and small b, and they together constitute good capital G. Or one might say that humanity is, uh, and the good of humanity is a curious combination of beneficence and rascality, of reason and passion. And if human beings didn't have those two sides, they would be less than human. Man is in a certain sense redeemed by his passions, redeemed by being something of a rascal. Because if he weren't, he would be like a uh, stew with no salt in it. The salt somehow is something that in a large quantity is horrible, but in a certain small quantity delightful. And so everybody has to be salted with a certain amount of unrespectability. Otherwise they're impossible and intolerable. The only thing is as a a fervent cook, don't overdo it. (laughs) It is in that respect, you know, that it's said of great gurus in India. They'd have a very funny thing they say people westerners go over and they meet this man who's supposed to be extremely holy and they're all agog you know and then after spending a few days with him they begin to wonder they find he smokes cigarette they find that uh, he occasionally loses his temper Uh, and they begin to think well is this man so holy after all i mean he surely should not be dependent on these little uh, habits and luxuries and so on and then they find he has a girlfriend and then they leave because they're so scandalized
0: <laughs>
1: well then they the Hindus say ah uh, ah uh, ah uh, ah uh. now you shouldn't get so upset about this because if this man didn't have a few little vices he would cease to manifest he would simply disappear and he has to have these things to keep him grounded to keep him in the world or uh, If suddenly, you know, uh, he gets terribly angry with a certain student and seems to lose his temper, they say, oh, no, 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 that's a tactical anger. That he did on purpose to wake you up to something. It was for your own development and for your own good. He didn't really feel angry at all. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) But do you see the point in there is something in the fact that if he didn't have these little uh, attachments, he wouldn't be manifesting. He'd simply disappear. There's something in that, only don't take it too piously. I think you get the point. So then, we now uh, have to explore a very important aspect of the Joker as uh, equivalent to Gurdjieff's sly man you see he points out the four ways the monk the fakir the yogi and the sly man and all the first three ways are ways of great difficulty they involve very very strenuous discipline and of course as we get it Uh, Through the books about Gurdjieff the way of the sly man involves a discipline, too But I I think there's more to be said about the way of the sly man than appears in any of those writings Because this is very closely connected With the whole approach of Taoism the Chinese philosophy of uh, Wu Wei or non-aggression and with what is called in Buddhism, the middle way. When the Buddha first uh, discussed the middle way, he put it like this, he said, to try and solve the problem of suffering by immersing yourself in pleasure only leads to a hangover. To try and solve the problem by asceticism, also brings no liberation, you merely get tied up in a kind of masochism where you say I know I'm right just so long as I'm hurting and all that is doing is expiating your uh, kind of infantile guilt sense. So he said there is a middle way between asceticism on the one hand and hedonism on the other. But actually, uh, the middle way is more subtle than that, and it's beautifully discussed in uh, Professor Baum, uh, a book called The Philosophy of Buddha. That's B-A-H-M, Professor of Philosophy at the University of New Mexico. And he gives a very, very fascinating analysis of the middle way uh, in the form of a dialogue whereby the it works simply like this the student brings a problem to the teacher and he says I suffer and it's a problem to me and the teacher says you suffer because you desire if you didn't desire you wouldn't suffer so try not to desire and the student goes away and says I'm not very successful in this I can't stop desiring it's terribly difficult And furthermore, I find that in trying to stop desiring, I'm desiring to stop desiring. Now, what am I to do about that? And the teacher replies, do not desire to stop desiring any more than you can. And so the student goes away and practices that. But he comes back to the teacher and said, I still find myself desiring excessively to stop desiring, and it doesn't work. So the teacher says, do not desire too much not to desire to stop desiring. (laughs) Now do you see what's happening? Step by step, almost like Achilles approaching the tortoise. The student is being brought together with himself to the point where he catches up with his own inner being and can accept it completely. And that is you see the most difficult thing to do to accept oneself completely. Because the moment you can do that You have in effect done psychologically what is the equivalent of saying in philosophical or theological terms. You as you are now are the Buddha. (coughs) Just as I was explaining
0: a few minutes ago.
1: That's unbelievable. Because we are always trying to get away from ourselves as we are now in one fashion or another and it's only we we will only stop doing that through a series of experiments in which we try resolutely to get away from ourselves as we are so that is the middle way but ordinarily in these other ways the way of the yogi the fakir and the monk The individual makes a big thing out of the work of liberation and uh, especially likes the kind of teacher who will put him through the most severe paces. It's interesting how there arise from time to time schools in the West where someone comes along. Offering, uh, people say, look, um, it's all very well to go to discussion groups and talk about these things, but that's not the real thing. What you need is really to get down and do some work. And often these teachers are very rude and very stern, but people love it. And such a person will always attract a great following. Because people get the feeling, now we're at serious business here. This is really something, you see. And uh, this, you see, though, can be an awful problem. Let's suppose that you have some difficult and distressing habit, like drinking too much. And uh, you're assured that once you've become the victim of this habit, It's an extraordinarily difficult thing to get rid of it and it requires intense willpower. And so that kills you right off. You're a dead duck from then on. It's as if you see you had said to the devil one morning, look, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. So the devil, who is an archangel and is terribly clever, is all set for you. And because he knows that you are getting out of his way, he uh, surrounds you with greater temptations than you ever imagined. If you are going to outwit the devil, it's terribly important that you don't give him any advance notice. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where the work of the sly man comes in. Put it in other terms, in Hindu or Buddhist terms, in the popular terms of popular Hinduism and Buddhism. Liberation is getting out of the toils of karma. It's like this. During your many past lives, you've done all kinds of deeds, good and bad, and you are reaping the consequences of these deeds today. And also today, you're setting up future consequences. Now, before you can be liberated, you've got to pay off your karmic debts. And so the moment you set your foot on the path of liberation, you are apt to find that all your karmic creditors will come to your door. And that's why it's often said that people who start out on a serious work of yoga suddenly get sick and lose their money and their best friends drop dead and all kinds of ghastly things happen. That's because, you see, they served notice that they were going to do this. And so all the creditors came around. If you're going to leave town and you owe lots of money, you know, you mustn't announce that you're leaving or give a farewell party to your friends because the grocer will find out. So uh, the, the art of the sly man is to make no contest but simply to leave (coughs) without one word. In other words, that's the meaning of Wu Wei in in the technical vocabulary of Taoism. Wu Wei, not to interfere, not to force things. That's the best translation of Wu Wei, not to force things. But so he just drops it like that. But you are, in this respect, you see, you're your own worst enemy. Because even if you serve notice privately on yourself, that suddenly you're going to drop it all. Already the devil knows. Because who do you think the devil is? (laughs) (laughs) Now this lies behind the whole... Uh, problem that uh, is discussed in the book Zen in the Art of Archery. The necessity of letting go of the bowstring without first deciding to do so. Another way of putting it is that the decision to release the bowstring and the action of doing so must be simultaneous. Not to decide and then act but to act decide all at once. Now, why is this? If you are going to be an expert archer, you must shoot before you think, otherwise it'll be too late. You don't aim and then shoot. It's all one action. And uh, this is true likewise of any sort of shooting, a pistol shooting as well, that uh, if you, aim if you uh, if you decide and then fire you're apt to do things like pulling the trigger instead of squeezing Uh, all kinds of wrong things are done and you're always a moment too late if you decide first you have to act and decide simultaneously so what does that do you see that puts up a very curious problem which in its own turn becomes a bind to try and act quickly enough so that you overtake the preliminary decision. To try not to decide first. And that is an impossible problem. I wonder if you ever read von Kleist's story about the fighting bear. The, uh, this is included in Nancy Wilson Ross's book, um, The World of Zen, as a kind of Western Zen. It's a story about a man who has a fight with a circus bear. And uh, the, the bear reads his mind and always forestalls any attack that he makes on it. There's absolutely nothing he can do to get past the bear. And so in the same way you might imagine a guru who is a mind reader and he always knows if you decide before you act. And if you do, you see the devil will catch you. Instead, you see, of deciding that you won't be an alcoholic anymore. The only thing to do is not to drink without any previous decision on this matter. But how can anyone do that, you see? That's the question. How can I decide not to decide? How can I announce that I won't make any announcement without making an announcement? You see, there is no way out of that bind. Try as you may. You go on and on and on, trying as Herigel did to release the bowstring without thinking first to release it. But then, strangely enough, one day, the thing happened. He did it. And this is involved in our learning of almost all techniques that we work and work to achieve that final point of perfection. And it doesn't come, it doesn't come, and then one day it happens. Now, what is the reason for that? Is it simply, and this is really, you know, the way it's usually explained, but this is an oversimplification. It is not that we have practiced it so often that it suddenly becomes perfect. It is much more subtle than that. What happens is that we've practiced so often that we find out we can't do it and it happens at the moment you know you can't do it. When you reach a certain point of despair, when you know that you are the one weird child who will never be able to swim, at that moment you're swimming. Because the desperation and the total inability to do it at all has brought you to a point which we might call don't care. You stop trying, you stop not trying, trying to get it that way. You just uh, 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 have arrived at the insight that your decision, your will, doesn't have any part in the thing at all. And that's what you needed to know. You've overcome, you see, the illusion of having a separate ego. There is no way of telling anyone that that's an illusion and getting appropriate action because we are thoroughly indoctrinated with the idea that it's real. And if I say, well, I'm going to get rid of my ego That's what the Taoists call, beating a drum in search of a fugitive.
0: (laughs) He hears you coming.
1: (laughs) So, uh, the, the, the ego, that is to say, the illusion of having a separate will and a separate eye center, that can be an effective agent That cannot be overcome by a decision which seems to be centered in the ego. You might as well put out fire with fire. It can come only when an attempt to act from the ego center has been revealed to be completely futile. Then the thing happens, because you've really discovered that it was, after all, an illusion. Now, be very careful how you formulate this sort of thing philosophically. This could, of course, correspond to the kind of person who feels unafraid and who feels very free because he's a complete fatalist. A lot of people are, and are very happy in their fatalism. They, they, they really feel that they, they don't do anything, it just happens, and that it's all life, and that uh, when, they, when they won't die until it's their time to die, and so why worry? Everything they have the sense of everything is just happening to them. And this is a kind of a floating feeling. Uh, it's as if you didn't have to push things at all, they just float along. Well now, that state of affairs, that feeling of uh, you don't have to push anything, it just floats along, is very similar to the experience I'm describing, if not the same thing. But uh, this person has interpreted it as a fatalist in a rather passive way. That is to say, he uh, has felt that there still is some kind of a little differentiation between himself as the experiencer on the one hand and that force or set of forces called fate on the other. He is pushed around but he witnesses being pushed around. Now in this state this person still has a little fragment of uh, impurity left. There's still one fly left in the ointment and that is the sensation of being pushed around. there is still a fundamental division between the knower and the known. And in this case, the case of the fatalist, the knower seems to be the passive thing and everything known, the objective world or the goings on of his own physiology, they appear to be the active end. And the knower just has the experience of himself being moved, 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 moved by the tides of life. The important thing to find out is this, that the sensation of being the knower and the experiencer of all this is not, as it were, aside from everything else that's going on, but part of it. Just as you, although you experience your own existence subjectively, you are nevertheless part of the external world. You are in my external world just as I am in your external world. So in this way, the final barrier between the knower and the known is broken down. There is nobody, as it were being carried along by fate. There is just the process. And all that you are is part of the process, then there is a curious flip. The individual who has always felt himself to be the tiny little uh, thing on the end of the big determining process suddenly goes bloop. Have you watched sometimes a tiny little piece of mercury coming nearer, uh, nearer to a large piece of mercury? the sudden moment when they touch each other and the little thing vanishes into the big one uh, almost more dramatically than a drop into the ocean. In this case that I'm talking about, it isn't that the individual organism vanishes, the individual human being doesn't vanish, but uh, he experiences no longer a passive relationship to the world, he simply sees that all that he is and all that he ever was was something that the entire process was doing. At the time, in other words, when he felt himself to be separate, he sees that that is in a certain way just what he should have felt. Because that was what the process was doing in him in exactly the same way that it was giving him brown or blue eyes or blonde or brunette hair. And that's going through the door, and turning round and seeing there wasn't a door, a finding that you aren't fated, that you're not trapped because there's nobody in the trap, and it takes something trapped to make a trap.